0: I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome to Countercurrents Radio. My guest today is Vox Day. Vox, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Greg. Good to be here.
0: Well, I recently discovered your work. I'm ashamed to admit it, but your interests had not really intersected with mine until you published SJW's Always Lie, and my friend Ann Sturzinger wrote a review of it for Countercurrents, my webzine, and I decided I'd read you myself, and I thought this was a really excellent book, and it's on the required reading list for all of my readers. I'm expecting book reports in my inbox tomorrow morning from my inner circle, so to speak. They should all be, all be reading it. And I wanted to just get to know you a little bit better, get to know your political philosophy, get to know how you came to be the author of this book. So can you tell me a bit about your worldview? How would you describe your political philosophy and who are some of the intellectual influences on its formation?
1: I would describe myself as a christian western uh, a christian western civilizationist uh you know i I've, I've been a libertarian for a long time uh, I was briefly even a card carrying libertarian, but I was always more of a small l libertarian rather than a, a capital l one um, mostly because but there was certain amounts of libertarian dogma that didn't quite uh, work out in, in in the real world. And then, as as time went on, it became readily apparent to me uh, as I traveled around the world, uh, as I lived in different countries, as as I learned different languages, it it became apparent to me that the abstract ideals. That we often tend to uh, tend to follow in, in America, in particular, are not really relevant to most of the world. You know, you can talk about. Uh, I was I was uh, being interviewed by an, a reporter from Le Monde in Paris about two months ago, and he had absolutely no idea how to even describe the concept of libertarian to his readers. And you know that that's in France, which is is you know at least Western civilization and so forth. You know, trying to have a conversation about that that sort of concept in in Japan or in China, it's it's just totally meaningless. And so uh, that's when I really became more cognizant of the importance of the nationalist element. Um, I, I think that just as uh, Stalin uh found it necessary to modify uh, international uh, socialism for the for the russians and uh, and and just as mao found it necessary to modify uh international socialism for the uh for the chinese uh it's necessary for every other ideology to also understand that there are nationalistic tribalistic uh limits you know, to the abstract application of those ideologies.
0: That's interesting. I'm an ex-libertarian myself. I was a not a card-carrying libertarian, but I subscribed to Reason Magazine and read lots of Ayn Rand and Hayek and Mises, mostly when I was an undergraduate. And there were things that led me away from that, Two books in particular. One I read Thomas Sowell's A Conflict of Visions, and the other was uh, *Celine's Journey to the End of the Night, which basically destroyed my sort of uh, liberal optimism about humanity. What are some of the things that you think don't work about libertarianism? You said that some of the abstract libertarian dogmas just don't work. So specifically, what are those?
1: Well, the most important one, as we're now seeing, is the free movement of peoples. And what what really changed my thinking, and it it was a a, a process, you know, it wasn't a direct, it was it wasn't an immediate thing, although it was a fairly quick process now that I think about it. Um, you know, I grew up on Milton Friedman. My father had me reading Free to Choose when I was fairly young, and uh, so I was a I was a big free trade dogmatist, and uh, around the time, the, you know, and, and and around the time of NAFTA and all that sort of thing, I could recognize some of the problems, but I f- I bought into the line that well, you know, the problem is it's not it's not real free trade. It's a free trade agreement, but it's not real free trade. And then uh, I read a, a really good book uh, by Ian Fletcher, and uh, he directly addressed the uh the concept of ricardo's um, comparative advantage and he really destroyed it i mean i think he had something like s- there were seven major problems with it and that got me interested and so i started looking into it and i'm very fortunate and then i have a i have a pretty uh active and intelligent blog readership and they really like to to engage and, and <laughs> they have absolutely no respect for me so uh, they're quite happy to argue with me, and you know most of them were free traders as well. And so we ended up having a, a, a ongoing, you know, two or three week debate about free trade, and it, it got pretty detailed uh, to the extent that I, I went through Henry Hazlitt's entire uh, chapter on free trade, you know, just to, to look at it critically. Uh, you know, rather than just reading through it and, and accepting it, just looking at the arguments, and I, I found that the, the free trade arguments were just full of holes. Um, not just not just Ricardo's, but also Hazlitt's, and and that's what got me uh, realizing that you know the, the Ricardo's uh, argument was totally dependent on the idea that that capital could move, but labor couldn't. And so, what that got me thinking about was the fact that a libertarian society, even if, even if we could convince everyone in the United States that, that libertarianism was the, the correct way, uh, to, to approach things, that it would rapidly be eliminated by the free movement of peoples as people from non-libertarian societies, people from cultures where they have absolutely no Ideals that are are in common with you know with the founding fathers or 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 with libertarian ideals, uh, they would rapidly be able to come in and and end uh, you know end that libertarian society, in much the same way that the Californians have uh, gone into Colorado and completely changed the completely changed the um, political climate there, and so that's what really that's what really Ian Fletcher's book was really what sort of triggered. That whole uh shift in thought process and, and so you know i now i have I a, a, a look at the concept of the free movement of peoples uh the free trade and and those sorts of concepts with a considerable amount of skepticism now and of course you know, in europe we're seeing uh, some of those problems related to the idea of the free movement of peoples just as uh, you're seeing it in, in the States with the Central Americans coming across the border.
0: Right. What is the name of the Fletcher book?
1: Uh, let me see here. I actually have it right here. It is, uh, Free Trade Doesn't Work. What should replace it and why?
0: Okay, that, that's going to go right on my reading list. Thank you. There were two things that really undermine my libertarianism. One is very much what you were talking about. It simply occurred to me that a libertarian society requires people who are willing to play by that ethic, right? But if a libertarian society doesn't exclude people who will exploit that ethic, then it will be destroyed. If you have open borders and anybody who can come in and basically they can come in and take your stuff or take your society from you, that will be the end of libertarianism. Therefore, libertarianism requires that you exclude the free riders, exclude the people who don't play by those rules. But you can't do that by libertarian means, right? You can't draw borders around people. You can't say, you have to leave because you won't play by the rules of our
1: game. Well, you can, you can, you can, you can if, you, if you modify them. I mean, I, I think that the libertarian movement uh if it is going to survive is going to have to make the same shift that we saw with the uh with the the communist ideology and it's going to need to shift from a international libertarianism to a national libertarianism because otherwise it, it simply can't survive. Right. You know one one of the authors that that I publish uh, at Castelia House is the Israeli military historian Martin Van Creveld. And he's he's absolutely brilliant. I mean, he's you know he, he's actually added to the can, the military canon. I mean, you can't understand military events if you haven't read Ben Creveld. And the thing that's fascinating to me is we were talking, and uh, we have a a military sci-fi military fact an anthology that we publish every year called Riding the Red Horse. And so I, I called Martin up and said, hey, you know, I'd, I'd really like you to to write uh to contribute something uh, you know contribute an essay to it and he said yeah okay i'd I'd love to and and he did and he uh, he sent in this phenomenal essay uh on migration and war and the really interesting thing about it and and keep in mind we're talking about a a premier military historian here he said basically migrate historically migration is war you know the the when the helveti uh Invaded the 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 Gaulish lands and Caesar went and and ended up defeating them after after they beat the the uh, Roman legions previously. You know that was a movement of peoples. That was not just an army. And it's the same with the Goths. It's the same with the Huns. It's the same with the Mongols. You know these were these were not um, the equivalent of the German Wehrmacht marching across the border. This was the entire society on the move um and and so you know the the distinction that we uh make between immigration and war is really a relatively modern one, and it 's largely an artificial one as well.
0: I would agree with that. I said this some years ago, I think in an interview with Dennis Fecho, we were talking about this very topic, and I said, looking at the late Roman Empire, looking at the barbarian invasions, these were not armies blitzing across borders right these were these were large migrations of people and the romans were constantly bringing these people in and settling them in their lands to to work for them and fight for them and things like that the the romans thought this was working out quite well for them right up to the point when it wasn't
1: well sure that, that and that's the problem because it it does work fine for a while um you know and and you know typically it's 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 the same reason. It's it's connected to the same reason that central banks you know, keep interest rates low, and the same reason that kids don't do their homework until the night before. I mean, it, it is a normal human thing to put off the the difficult uh, task as long as possible. And unfortunately, uh, you know, one way that a society can can put off some of its, its problems put off facing those problems is by, you know, permitting, um, large migrations to enter. And of course, you know, the, the price of that usually is the eventual collapse of the society.
0: Right. And in the short run, it does serve short-term elite interests, which is why it's permitted in the first place. Cheap labor, right. soldiers for the legions whatever the motives were, or just because it's easier to go along with this for a little while and raise an army and repulse it. And yeah, eventually, though, you find that uh, you're, you've been replaced in your own homeland. And when Rome was sacked, it was it was sacked by people who were settled for generations inside the Roman Empire itself. It wasn't a long march for them to get to Rome and sack it. Right. They were already there. And, and I think that Looking at what's happening in Europe today and looking at the United States today, it's exactly the same process
1: and, and the I- ironic thing is that it's actually much worse in the USA than it is in Europe, even though people don't realize it because they don't uh, most Americans don't understand that the the Muslim population uh, in Europe is about five percent. It's actually a little less than five percent. and so you know whereas the the Hispanic community in the United States is pushing 30%. Right. And so it's, and, and also the European nations have a much stronger, uh, much more active sense of nationalism. Uh, you know, you, you can, you can't be German. You know, the, the, if you, if you meet, um, you know, I was up in, uh, in Cologne a few weeks ago and there was a, a, a Turkish gentleman who was, um, who was, uh, my taxi driver. And we were talking a bit and, and he had been, you know, in Germany for something like 27 years or 30 years or something. And he still considered himself to be Turkish. You know, right. he, he's not, wh- whereas, uh, you know, if, if someone has lived in, in the States for 30 years, you know, people say, oh, you're an American. You know, you're an American now. Whereas the, the, the Germans would, would never reach that conclusion.
0: Right. This almost sounds like the beginning of a stand-up routine, but whenever I get in a, a cab, I always ask the immigrant what country he's from, and they always tell me, and then I always ask, when do you plan to go back? I put it in the most naive possible way, and there's only been one instance where somebody got upset with me for asking that question. Usually they get really thoughtful And they would say things like, well, I've been here for 20 years and I thought I would go back very soon, but I just sort of got caught up in things. And I, you know, ask, have they gone and visited their homeland? Oh, yes. A lot of these people, especially if they come from Asia or Africa or the Middle East, they don't feel like they're Americans. They they feel like they're exiled Afghani's or exiled Eritreans or whatever. Well,
1: it, it's well, it's not it's not difficult for me to understand this because I've lived in Europe now for nearly twenty years, mm-hmm. and you know we we made the decision to leave, uh, and you know we have integrated pretty uh, you know pretty fully. Um, certainly the certainly the kids consider themselves that you know the the kids don't consider themselves to be Americans at all um, but because you know we don't we don't we don't go back we don't visit it um we're still culture you know m- we're still culturally American in a number of ways, but that's also because it's somewhat difficult to escape american culture uh because of the entertainment right you know the the um but you know it it is uh i understand firsthand how uh, i mean to me it's always funny that you know i i left 20 years ago and people say oh well you're still an american and then i say well then why do you think that you know some somebody from el salvador who's been there for 5 years is an american
0: right exactly yeah. exactly
1: it makes no sense.
0: I have been in a conversation with certain liberal academic types who, within a five-minute period, will talk about horrible tragedies and discrimination, etc., the bloodshed between the Irish and the English, this horrible, horrible, long, dark history. And then within five minutes, we'll be talking about how glorious it is that there are Pakistanis and Bangladeshis living in England. And it's like, if two peoples as similar as the irish and the english have this long tragic history of bloodshed why do you think it will be any different and any better with people who are so radically different
1: well that well, and that's my and that's my concern both um you know especially in in europe because you know i mean this whole syrian migration crisis you know didn't begin all that long ago and yet you're already seeing fairly totalitarian laws being passed in places like Hungary and stuff where, you know, they just passed a law last Friday where they can search your house without a warrant if they're, if they're looking for migrants. Right. You know, and, and this is like, what, a couple weeks in? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine how, you know, what sort of laws they're going to be passing and what they're going to be permitting uh, and what the governments are going to be doing? Um, if they don't, if they don't get this flow to stop fairly quickly. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be, I'm afraid that it is going to be, you know, absolutely horrific. And the, you know, the problem is that it's the open borders people who are going to be to, completely to blame. You know, this, none of this needed to happen. This is a, this is a completely unnecessary, um, crisis, uh, that has been created.
0: I agree. It it sort of illustrates Sam Francis's notion of anarcho-tyranny, too, because on the one hand, if you're a Hungarian citizen, this is profoundly upsetting, and it's basically a across-the-board loss for you if you're a Hungarian citizen. For the Hungarian government, though, they have to have some little area of their consciousness where they realize that they benefit from this. Nietzsche once said that the kings of Europe have never sat so securely on their thrones since the anarchists started throwing bombs at them. And why is that? Well, because it allows them to clamp down on their populations. It allows them to have an emergency, to arrogate power, to do something.
1: Well, but the, 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 the thing that the thing that's actually slightly alarming about about uh, Hungary is that this is not the extremists that are passing these laws. This is like the equivalent of the Republicans. Oh yeah. You know, this is this is this is not. You know, Jobbik is the uh, is to the right of the current government, and and then they've got the Iron Guard. You know, beyond that, and you know, and I think that we're basically two election cycles from the the nationalists taking power, which which which, which will be a good thing. But my concern is that if If the nationalists are not able to take power, then you're going to see the ultras uh eventually taking power simply because you know people are not going to tolerate this this constant um invasion you know the the the, the rapes of the native populations and and the the criminality and the ghettos you know I, I was in um i think I mentioned i was in i guess i didn't yeah i w- well when I was in paris it wasn't the that same trip but on another trip to Paris, uh, it was it was extremely comical in a very dark way. If you've if you've got a black sense of humor, um, I was walking through the the uh, Jardin Nelson Mandela, which is the you know a, a garden square sort of thing dedicated to Nelson Mandela. Oh, spare me, God! And there were about sixty Africans just kind of lounging around, yeah, you know, not not causing any trouble, just you know hanging out, enjoying the sun, which was fine. Um, but there were four, uh, French gendarmes armed with machine guns who were standing on a platform, like, overlooking them, keeping an eye on them all. Right. And it was just, I was just thinking, you know, I don't think this is quite what, what we had in mind when we wanted to, you know, honor Nelson Mandela here.
0: (laughs) Right. It's, It's a very, very disturbing thing. I do think that this is good for nationalism in Europe, and... I, I think the Europeans will save themselves from this. I'm less certain about the United States because I think the United States has a very, very weak sense of identity, and it's largely a propositional form of identity rather than a racial or ethnic form of identity. And it's those those are shallow roots. And we have this idea that we can we we assimilated the Italians and the Irish, so why can't we assimilate? Uh, Hispanics and Fijians and,
1: and Africans. So what's the difference? Well the, well the the you know the big difference, you know, and, and uh, I'm the great grandson of a Mexican revolutionary myself. And so, you know, I have a I have Spanish-speaking cousins. Um, you know, I'm I'm not I, I'm not I wouldn't say that I'm you know, uh of hi- Hispanic culture. I'm more sort of tangential to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know the thing that people don't understand about uh, Hispanics is that um, they do have a functional culture i mean what the way that they live works, but it's very very different than American culture i mean you know you, you can see it when you go to uh you know south of Los angeles now mm-hmm. um, you know it's 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 not it's not entirely third world, but it's not first world either. You know, they they don't live like Europeans do. Right. They're, they're just, um, <laughs> you know, we were we were uh, driving through Switzerland once, and we saw this woman who was actually vacuuming the sidewalk. <laughs> That's know, great. That would never ever happen in a in a Hispanic community. You know, it, it's it's just and and. You know, they just they just don't keep things up they they're they're not as um they're not as as uptight about things and 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 it's not all a bad thing it's actually you know it's actually a um you know where we live in italy it's actually similar in some ways because you know don't worry about it you know the, you can deal with the problem tomorrow the the problem is still going to be there tomorrow right. don't worry about today let's let's just have a drink and enjoy the nice weather right You know, it's not it's not a it's not a horrible thing. It's not a bad thing, but you're not going to get to the moon that way.
0: Right. Exactly. Uh, An Italian friend of mine years ago uh, said that his uh, mother or grandmother would had this little saying that every morning the housewives of Switzerland sweep the streets and deposit the dust over Italy. And I I, so (laughs) it doesn't surprise me now that they're using vacuum cleaners. That's that's a new one on me. I'm going to steal that as a story. Um, one of the one of the things that struck me as a as a point of disagreement with your book, it was not an explicit point in your book that I was disagreeing with, but it's sort of an assumption, is that you don't seem to think that identity politics as such is legitimate. Is that correct, or, or was I just reading that into it?
1: Well, it depends what the identity politics are. I mean, I think that. Uh, I think that nationalism and tribalism are not only legitimate, I think that they're uh virtually unstoppable forces. Okay, that's um,
0: useful. Thank you.
1: But I think that identity politics of the sort where, you know, you decide that, that you're really a dragon and I decide that I'm really a little girl, uh, y- you know, that's just absurd. That, that's... that's um, It's not real. It's it's basically a a false form of identity politics. And the the thing is, the left, um, ironically enough, uh, either denies or embraces the first form of identity politics politics, depending upon uh, what the identity is. You know, it's it's fine to practice. I mean, ironically, um, it's fine to practice Hispanic. Uh, identity politics, even though virtually no Hispanic people consider themselves to be Hispanic. Right. You know, my, my cousins are Mexican; they're not Hispanic. Right. Yeah, they don't. They don't think of themselves as Hispanic or Latino or whatever. Um, you know, whereas um, you know, whereas they don't uh, recognize, uh, you know, anything from uh, anything from, you know uh... white anglo-saxon protestant identity you know you're, you're not allowed to have a uh... A, a political identity that is based on that right so uh... but you can of course you know declare yourself other kin and and then you're we're all supposed to you know respect the idea that you're really a llama
0: right exactly So much of the left now just seems to be humoring and patronizing crazy people.
1: Well, I think I think it has something to do with something that both uh, Orwell and Dalrymple have said, which is that you know once you can convince someone to accept the idea that two plus two equals five, you can get them to accept anything. Right. And so you know they don't care what the lie is; they just want you to indicate that you're willing to submit to it. Because because it's the lie, it's the fact of the lie that is is the important thing. And I think that's one of the reasons why you know I am tend to be very unpopular in certain circles because you know my single guiding point is to attempt to uh, ascertain and stand by uh, the small T truth um in the name of the large T truth and uh you know that that's that's the what i try to stand by and and i don't really concern myself much with whether it makes you feel bad or someone else feel bad or or even me feel bad you know there's there's a lot of uncomfortable truths out there that you know i would i would like to be able to reject myself
0: right right
1: but but that way lies madness
0: exactly the The main objection that I have to mainstream conservatism in the United States is that it will not embrace identity politics for white people. The battle in America today is a a battle of identity politics, but they want to remain above that. The, The enemy is invading us from the north, right? They're invading us along the identity front. They're fighting us on the identity front and mainstream conservatives refuse to go where the battle is. They refuse to engage on issues of identity. Instead, they want to go and they want to you know, fight on another front, right? They're not engaging the enemy, and I don't think they can win that
1: way. Well, they can't win that way, but one of the fundamental problems that you have is that they're, you know, in the same way that there is no Hispanic identity, there is no white identity, you know. When when you talk to someone, you know, if, if you say, if you go up to someone, and I'm not talking whether you do it now or whether you did it thirty years ago, you know, if I went up to my friend and said, um, hey, you know, what are you? He wouldn't say that he was white. He would say that he was Swedish and Norwegian. And so I think that the um the attempt to to build a any sort of um any sort of white identity politics suffers from the same problem that the Hispanics have. And if you think about it, the Hispanic identity has been very, very unsuccessful politically compared to its numbers. How so? Well, I mean, if you just look at the number of, if you look at the number of, uh, quote-unquote, Hispanic people in California, Mm -hmm. and you look at the number of Hispanic politicians, they are woefully underrepresented, you know it's it's very um it's only you know very recently that that uh you know the the first hispanic mayor of los angeles or whatever was elected and that sort of thing right. um despite the fact that they had the numbers to theoretically you know to basically be dictating everything in california for for years now but but they don't have like i said um you know <laughs> anglos as as they Tend to call uh, tend to call whites do not have they don't have that Hispanic identity they're Mexican they're El Salvadoran they're Guatemalan and so forth and so it, it, it's just a um, it, it, you know I, I think that you um, it's not just fear of being called names um, it's also the fact that there is no white identity per se there are the different European nations. Um, and, the, and the echoes of them in the USA.
0: I, I think yes and no. I, I had a meeting in California. It was a gathering of countercurrents writers and readers and donors, and there were I think there were thirty eight of us in the room. And I asked how many of the people present were of some kind of unmixed European ethnic group, right? Meaning that they weren't German, Norwegian, Span, uh, you know, Spanish or whatever. That they were just Scottish or German. It turns out that only two people in the room were of unmixed European ethnicity, and both of them had been born outside the United States. One was born in Germany. One was born in Scotland.
1: Right. I I understand that, but that's that's you 're talking about DNA there you 're not talking about the culture you 're not talking about the way that they were raised and how they identify themselves, like i said the uh, i mean it's just not i mean i've lived in Europe for twenty years mm-hmm. the, the The sense of national identity is so much stronger here
0: oh i i, you, I, I totally you, you agree can't,
1: with that. you, you can 't even compare it and that and, and and what i'm saying is that that is part of the challenge that i've 've never heard uh, anyone talking about is just the fact that um, you know, the 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 white identity is not partic- is is not any stronger than the you know la raza cosmica as, as the as the Hispanics um, the Hispanic intellectuals call themselves the right. cosmic race.
0: Right. I I think that that is changing because I think that in the United States what you're getting is a kind of generic. European,
1: But, but they, do, they don't. That's the, that's the thing. I've, I've written on this several times. One of the biggest problems that, you know, people say, oh, we successfully integrated the Irish, we su- su- successfully integrated the Italians and all that. We didn't really. You know, if you look at the political history of the USA, it is very, very clear that the Irish, the Italians, and especially the, uh, the Germans and Scandinavians in the Midwest – um, not the Germans who came first, but the Germans who came you know, later and settled in, in the Midwest. They have never ever understood the rights of Englishmen. Mm-hmm. They, they don't. They never had any history of it. You know, the the whole Magna Carta, um, uh, limited government, all that sort of thing is totally and utterly foreign to the European uh, immigrant populations that that came in the later waves. And I don't think it's an accident that if you look at a lot of the changes, the the crucial changes that took place, um, especially when you get to like the 1965 Immigration Reform Act, you know, I don't think it's an accident that you know you had the Irish grandchildren of immigrants who were um, had a very different perspective on it than the Anglo-Saxons um you know who who had uh, settled the country in the first place. And so now I'm not I'm not you know that's not a hill that I'm willing to go to battle on just because it's a, it's a huge subject and it's not one that I've really seen very well studied. But um I do think that it's a, it's a it is a mistake to assume that all these people coming from a Napoleonic law, Roman law traditions which you know i see over here because the the legal systems here are very very different than, than either in England or the states um because they came from these different intellectual traditions you know i don't think that they really ever truly grasped some of those those concepts and i think that that is um is something that factored into how the usa transformed over the last you know 60 70 years
0: yeah i, I can see your point there Again, 1965 is 50 years ago. There have been two generations since then. You know, I meet people who have you know fascinating exotic German names, and I'll ask them, "Wow, what an interesting German name! Where does that come from?" They don't even know it's a German name anymore, right? <laughs> they're just a they're just a generic white American middle class person. I do think that's happening more and more. You know, I, I know this Greek guy. And I asked him about his ancestry, where his family came from in Greece, things like that. that was two generations ago doesn't mean anything to
1: him well sure but but, but the thing that, but but the problem the problem is is that that just the, the fact that they 're generic that, that they don 't know anything and that they're just kind of generic white doesn't mean that they're going to care about the generic white thing uh the way that they're you know they're lutheran scandinavian you know uh grandparents would have cared about that identity and and i think what's you're going to see happening is that um it's not until people begin to uh suffer from the aggressive identity politics of other groups that that identity begins to really coalesce and harden
0: exactly and i do think that you might not be interested in white identity but your enemies see you as a generic white guy.
1: Yes, exactly. Well, not me because I'm I'm Indian and Mexican, but, but yes.
0: Hell, your SJW enemies still want to call you a generic white guy. Um, yeah, that's true, yeah, which I think is fascinating. <laughs> I, I,
1: I I love I love the fact that these these monolingual idiots who are you know just white 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 liberals they they you know they they try to get on my get on my back about being some you know white republican conservative guy when i you know i speak italian german french some japanese i haven't lived in the states for you know 20 years and i've never voted for a republican for president right <laughs> yeah you know, they have they have basically they're so focused on this template of the enemy that if you're in opposition to them, they're going like, to cram that square peg into that, into that round hole by any means necessary.
0: Exactly, exactly. They have a script, and there's nothing is going to get in the way of reading their script out. Let's talk about the uh, SJW's Always Lie book. Why do they always lie? What's going on there?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, it, it begins um, as a defense mechanism most of the serious sjw's that you encounter are uh people who have had very difficult childhoods and have been dealt unfortunate hands by fate you know it it's it's not at all uncommon you know if you go to an sjw heavy site you will see that most of the commentators will talk openly about the drugs that they're on you know they're they're almost all um diagnosed with some form of you know depression or anxiety or or something and so they're very very fearful people and reality is simply too much for them and so they retreat into a, a fantasy land and then you know they attempt to Make that fantasy land, uh, a, a real in the same way that, uh, advertising companies do. You know, if, if you just keep telling yourself enough that you're really a girl, then, you know, eventually maybe you and people around you will start to believe it. You know, th- it's totally insane. It's not true. But, um, you know, they're basically trying to, they're, they're basically trying to fake it until they make it, never mind that they're never ever going to make it.
0: Right. When I look at people like this, I just think Nietzsche was right. There are people who basically create ethical codes to put themselves in a flattering light. And some of these people seem really, really ill-favored by nature, right? And so they are going to create an ethical code that not only makes them look good, But actually places them in the vanguard of humanity, so they go about doing that. They choose their beliefs according to what makes them feel good about themselves, which is an inherently dishonest premise to begin with. And if if that's the starting point, well, everything after that basically is going to be you know one lie after another to keep the original lie afloat, so to speak. And you know the the idea that race and gender i'm holding my fingers in the air making scare quotes gender things like that are all social constructs that's just a metaphysical posit a metaphysical presupposition of this egalitarian plastic ideology that they want to have where you can basically be anything and and uh, all the differences that uh Make make people feel bad can be ironed out, can be uh, can be removed somehow through social progress. Right, it's something that I actually try and <laughs> um, insulate myself from. You know, I. I I don't need to be reminded constantly about how crazy the left is. And so reading your book, and especially reading some of the quotes in there, some of these incredibly crass quotes, uh, really was was a rather upsetting experience. It's like, this is why I don't read Gawker. But uh, you've been in the trenches, and I, I realize that a lot of the people that I've gotten to know recently really are in the trenches fighting this stuff and rolling it back, and I missed out on all of that. And that's one of the things that was so exciting about the book, reading about Gamergate, which only sort of showed up on the edge of my attention. It was nothing that I really looked into, or all this stuff about the Hugo Awards and things like that, which I'd never heard of, right? All of this stuff did not enter my world, really. And so seeing how you and the people associated with Gamergate actually rolled back some of this political correctness in one area of culture and then again in the in the sci-fi area was really inspiring and i'm i'm now looking at people who are in the trenches on comment boards you know creating memes and things like that this really is the front line of the culture wars and it's it was very inspiring to me and i think it would be inspiring to a lot of my readers who are equally out of touch with me <laughs> uh to um to see that this actually can be rolled back and and how to do it. So do you have advice for people who want to actually get in the trenches and and roll back PC?
1: Well, I think the the first advice is don't be afraid. You know, one of the main main reasons that people don't stand up to these people is that they're afraid. They're afraid to be called names. They're afraid to be called you know, racist, sexist, homophobic, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the thing is, is that it, it, they're just words. Right. You know? And, you know, if, if you, uh, sp- it, you know, there are times when you're going to suffer for speaking the truth. There's times when you're going to lose opportunities or you're going to have negative experiences as a result. But, you know, the, the, um the reward that comes from the self confidence and the self respect of knowing that you know what you said was true and it doesn't matter that a hundred other people are 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 you know claiming that that there are not four lights but there are five when you can see that there are four right there. Um, you know it's worth it. And and each person the thing that's so important is that each person who stands up and says no uh inspires numerous others maybe it's one other maybe it's a hundred others you know you, you don't know and a lot of times you won't even know what sort of positive uh, impact you're having on others um, but that's why I think it's important to uh, you know look to those who are already doing it see how they're doing it and then learn from them
0: yeah I, I thought that the practical Advice that you give for what to do while being under attack is, is really very useful. For a long time, I have wanted to put together a guide for people who are under attack because I see all these, you know, I, I see a policeman or a school board member or a minor politician or somebody accidentally says something true about race in America. And then they are in the beams of the SPLC and all these groups and they're forced to resign and, or they're pressured to resign. And I, I've always wanted to like have a, have something to hand to them. And even better it would be if there was somebody who would be like a, a, like a slick lawyer or somebody who would go to them, you know, be there in 24 hours and sit down with them and say, this is what's going to happen to you. These are the places where you can stop it. These are the lines you can draw. This is how you can prevent you, yourself from losing your job and so forth. I think that would be great because it strikes me that it might only take one person to stand up right uh in 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 one highly publicized instance for for this tide to be stopped
1: well it's no well no it's it, one is not going to stop it. People have already stood up, you know yeah um. Uh, chick fil however you pronounce Chick-fil-a, that. Chick-fil-A, yeah. Um, they they did, uh, the Duck Dynasty people did, you yeah. know, so so people are are doing it. Um, and I think that the sort of thing, you know, uh, you've got FIRE, which is that, uh, that university legal system. Right. It wouldn't surprise me at all if either they branched out into uh, some sort of anti-SJW um, activity or if uh, some new organization uh, were to take form doing something similar you know providing legal services and that sort of thing to you know people like the Tim Hunts or the um, or the Brandon Ikes of the world right. you know but but the main thing is for the information to get out there the main thing is for people to understand that look they're lying to you it's not going you know going along with what they want is not going to end anything it's not going to make it better all they're going to do is take your scalp and and turn it into a bloody flag, right? And, and so you know, don't believe them; they're liars,
0: right? Right. I mean, the the tendency that so many wide-eyed, good-natured you know Americans have is is to is to treat other people as acting and speaking in good faith, as thinking that an apology will actually produce. Uh, atonement and uh, you know repair a relationship and help you move forward with your life and it's very very hard for people to wrap their minds around the idea that they're dealing with a kind of mafia of people who can very very carefully imitate those sorts of moral behaviors and attitudes but they're only doing it to gain advantage uh, against you, and they're only going to use it to destroy you. And once we stop treating these people as members of the same potential society, right, that's what we want. We have this idea that, that we have a great way of life and that if we're just open to others, that they'll see the light and want to be part of it, You know, which puts us at a disadvantage when people have no such intention, but they're good at faking our kind of language we have to get people to realize that you know these people might walk and talk like human beings but they belong to a slightly different species right they don't want to be part of your society they want to destroy you because they want to destroy our society and replace it with some kind of totalitarian system which basically seems to boil down to patronizing crazy people right Anyway, your book is the thing that I'm trying to get into everybody's hands. And I ask my readers to pledge to me or to themselves, to God, whatever, that if they see somebody under fire in their hometown or their state or whatever, to act and to make sure that they get what you've written to see if they might save themselves. And yeah, there have been people who stand up to this. And it's not necessarily going to be the case that you know, one person standing up will be the one who makes the difference and starts something. But it is the case that sometimes one person can change everything, you know, if, if it catches on.
1: I really appreciate your support for the book, and I'm, I'll be delighted to uh, hear what your readers have to think about it.
0: Well, that's great. That's great. So what's next for you? What, what, are, you, what are you working on?
1: Well, um, I've got a number of books to edit. Uh, the 4GW Handbook for William Lind and Lieutenant Colonel Thiel of the Marine Corps is next. Um, I'm working on a, my book two in my f- epic fantasy series. Um, it's called A Sea of Skulls. And then after I get that done, I'll probably publish a follow-on called SJW's Always Double Down.
0: Hey, that's great. I- I'm looking forward to that. And I'm sure they're going to give you a whole bunch of new material just in the their reactions.
1: Oh, they've they've already given they've already given me enough to do half the book just in the first week.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. Well, Vox, this has been a very good conversation and I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy. So is there anything you'd like to leave our readers with? One last word, so to speak.
1: Well, I would just say that uh like Greg said, um, you know, read the book. And see how you can apply it to your life. See how you can apply it to your job. How you can apply it to the organizations that you belong to. And, and, you know, understand that it is worth making the effort and taking the risk to stand up against the SJWs because they're coming for you whether you stand up or not.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you very much. This has been a great conversation. I hope the first of many.
1: I hope so, too. Thanks again, Greg.